Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. Except when we don't. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing storytelling and tabletop RPGs. And joining me for the discussion are returning guest Norman Mitchell. Welcome, Norman. Happy to be here. I'm expecting to have a, a great time geeking about geeking out about a, one of my longest running hobbies in my life. And we also have Kevin Helps. Welcome, Kevin. Hello. I'm happy to be back and get inevitably hated on by people who love the same hobby I do. <laughs> Uh, you've been on the internet (laughs) and as the uh the most long-term member of the protagonist podcast who who knows something about this subject producer andrew's gonna be joining us for this discussion too yes less than either of the guests but more than joe (laughs) so in the past on the protagonist podcast we've done some special episodes like uh storytelling and video games with john bell or storytelling and fan fiction with todd mack uh, where we talked through a medium or a type of storytelling and for a while, I've been wanting to do one about RPGs, and I realized what I was thinking of, I needed to also say tabletop RPGs, because there are also like the MMORPGs, and I imagine others that are out there that exist mm-hmm. for people to consume and play. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I knew I did not have the necessary knowledge base to lead this discussion. And I suspected that Norman and Kevin, based on some things I know about them <laughs> would be <laughs> would be experts that, that could join us for the discussion. So I will just tell my knowledge of tabletop RPGs. I did one sort of longish campaign and a couple one day campaigns as a player. That's it. That's my my entire experience. <laughs> now, real quick, real quick. I want when when Joseph said sort of longish campaign, I want to know to Norman and to Kevin, what is, what does that represent to you? What is your interpretation of what Joseph just said? For his sort of longish campaign. Barring any other data, sort of longish to me means six months. Yeah, I was going to say like eight months. Like six to eight months. And and how many hours within those six months do you think would have been spent playing? Uh, three to four hours a week. Okay. Right. And wow. Okay. My, <laughs> my experience role playing. My experience role playing is setting aside like an entire Saturday for like eight to ten hour sessions. Mm, like okay. once a week. Oh, dip. <laughs> yeah that's the way that i've been playing pretty much the whole time i've been playing rpgs that's amazing but joseph do you want to explain i think it was, we about across about five or six months once a month except for one month where we couldn't get together we did about three hour sessions okay. uh on on sunday nights is that Are right we, Andrew? Um, I think longish yeah, so I'm i'd more say about, like the amount of time it took to complete this thing i know there's much more in-depth versions of this that are that people do yeah so i'd say uh, across the like five to six months we got together 1.5 times per month on average for two hours or less per Mm -hmm. per gathering playing five Um, some of that was uh the the necessary schedule juggling which i believe mm -hmm. is a noted facet of this fandom oh yeah Uh, i think that's why uh when is good was invented and and also my uh my son who had an earlier bedtime than the rest of us was joining the campaign so that also affected things yeah so i'd say it's it was like i probably like 15 hours total Mm -hmm. give give or take 15 to 20 hours of gameplay for the beginner's box of pathfinder 2e or second edition Ooh, you you played the quality stuff 
the the hard stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, I knew all of that. There you go. I mean, that's a that's I mean, a baptism by fire in RPGs. Pathfinder uh, is <laughs> across four hundred twenty five episodes of this podcast. I've always been the expert, so it is interesting to be you know on the other side of, <laughs> of the conversation. Always the expert for sure, and yeah. always, always, ne- never, never not understood a reference <laughs> that a guest made or anything like that. So, so I ran that game for uh, Joe, his son, uh, our brother John, who's been on this podcast, and my wife Kestra. Who's also and, been on the podcast. And briefly, another brother had joined us, but that didn't last. Yes. Didn't he take. was he was the uh he was in for like the first three or four sessions and then uh so life got in the way. Of the campaign, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the normal length for a campaign for so everyone. Briefly, right? briefly for two thirds of the campaign. Um but yeah, so we were able to play, you know, about every two to three weeks huh. across that six months. All right. Uh F- football season got in the way. Yes, that's true. Uh, Kevin, uh, I think your experience is a little more in depth. So why don't you tell us what your experience is and then we'll have Norman and then Andrew, you can tell us your your level of knowledge of of tabletop RPGs. Okay, so I've always bookmarked uh, the age 10 because that makes the math really easy as when I started Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, When I started reverse engineering my experiences from elementary school, that's probably not true. I was probably between 10 and 12 when I picked up D&D, but I think it's noteworthy that without ever having played an official TTRPG, at the age of 10, I built one for my friends. Um, And we randomized the numbers by uh, spinning a pencil over a sheet of paper. I'm acting like there's a camera on me and there clearly is not. Um, And then tapping a grid with numbers on it. So I just wanted, I built an RPG at the age of 10. (laughs) And then... um, but that's largely irrelevant. And then I played Dungeons and Dragons from somewhere between 10 and 12 is when I picked it up. That was second edition. Um, it was, I learned much later, a revised version of second edition. Um, I was very faithful to D&D through third, through 3.5. Uh, fourth edition, I dallied with Pathfinder. And then I exploded into a bunch of other systems when I realized that D&D wasn't the only okay. show in town. Uh, Kevin, just a second. I, I of course am following all of this, but for any listeners who aren't aren't familiar, you we might want to just set the table that D and D has released regular updates and new kind of rule guidebooks, and those are the different editions you're talking about, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for some people, Dungeons and Dragons is just Dungeons and Dragons. You know, right. for, gonna, for some gonna... people, Dungeons and Dragons is tabletop <laughs> RPG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like how Kleenex is a brand. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, well then, okay, Uh, I've been playing tabletop RPGs for 26 years, and I've probably played easily 100, um, and I've read probably closer to 1,000. There, that's my condensed version. I am in awe. (laughs) That, I don't think you should be. (laughs) Is it awe and terror? Is it sublimity that you're experiencing? Yes, definitely. (laughs) All right, uh, Norman? And I thought I've read a lot of RPG books, um, but the I started playing role playing like tabletop role playing games sometime in the year 2000, roughly uh, the my first exposure to the idea that Dungeons and Dragons existed, I think, was seeing some reruns of the the 80s cartoon when I was a kid. But other than that, Sick. I hadn't interacted with it at all. And then a friend of mine came into study hall one day when I was in middle school with the 3.0 player's handbook 
and we sat down and talked about stuff and read through the books and made characters and tried to play in study halls for a little while. Um, and then it, that turned into like trying to play on the weekends. And so I had kind of this tertiary relationship that was like related to some of my school friends for a little while in middle school. And then in high school, we like got more into it and we did like more improv improvisational role playing sometimes just like using D10s to like try to generate results and like doing storytelling, like games together, some of my friends. And then once I got to college, there was a tabletop role playing club on campus, which exposed me to multiple dozens, if not hundreds of role playing game systems. That's when I started to like, Fall, like I, I played advanced Dungeons and Dragons second edition for the first time when I came to college. I played a game system that is referred to as the World of Darkness by White Wolf. And that includes uh, Vampire, Werewolf, uh, Mage are like their big games. I played Shadowrun for the first time. I played Pathfinder when fourth edition came out because I didn't, I didn't initially kind of deride fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons the way some people did, but I was still like really hardcore 3.5 guy, Dungeons and Dragons 3.5. So when Pathfinder first edition kind of picked up the mantle of the mechanics of 3.5 and continued it, that has like kind of been my game since Pathfinder first edition had, has come out. Uh, and Sitting in my apartment, looking around at my shelves, because not too long ago I counted, I have 119 RPG books in my home. Oh, we're in the deep end now, boys. <laughs> nice. Uh, most wow. of which okay. are this split is... between 3.5 Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder First Edition. Uh, and I also produce third party have... content for Pathfinder First Edition. That is really cool. Um, I... I feel like I should have more questions, but I don't know what they are. So, uh, Andrew. <laughs> uh, so I think my, my main concept, I like from just like the cultural osmosis, there was a concept of Dungeons and Dragons in my head. And I'm sure that predates like even the episode of community, but that's one of the like more concrete examples that I have of like envisioning Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. And, through podcasting, I got a lot more exposure because podcasting D and D games is is a whole a whole field, hmm. and and so I started listening to some of those, and and some of those were recommended to me by a coworker um, that I had after college. So so my exposure is is completely post college, uh, and I had a coworker who we talked about podcasts. He would recommend some of the the role playing game podcasts, and then he invited me to play with his group. And so that was the first time I played and I played uh, Pathfinder first edition through that. Uh, and then I've played some D and D fifth edition. I have run a little bit of D and D fifth edition and Pathfinder first edition. Those were the one-off games that, that Joe talked about. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I kind of committed to Pathfinder second edition when my family was like, okay, we're really interested. We want to, actually do it and i was like okay i have the most experience so i will be the dungeon master also the fate of the dungeon master is probably the person who's like i'm really interested in playing this game oh i'm kind of interested all the other people say i'm kind of interested <laughs> but nobody else will commit to the hard job right i want to play but i'm gonna have to 
run the game instead. <laughs> and um, and yeah, and so so a combination of like the experience and the level of commitment I was ready to provide was so much greater than anyone else's. So I became the the game master for our playthrough of the beginner's box for second edition. Now Pathfinder. It- when Norman was sharing his thing, he said he started around the year 2000. And part of me said, that's not that long ago. And then I immediately corrected myself and said, that is 23 years ago. That is 23 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and then Andrew just now, he said, oh, the Dungeons and Dragons episode of Community. And I was like, nah, that's not that long ago. I just went and double checked. And that is 12 years ago. So uh, time is passing <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> I'm having that a little coincided, crisis in the middle of this. That <laughs> episode of, of Community must have coincided pretty closely with the release of Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition, right? Yeah, I was just thinking when you said twelve years ago. Yeah, fifth uh, edition is is in that neighborhood like ten years 2014, ago. 2014, so. 2015, if I remember right. Yeah, there might have been the bubblings of it coming around the time that that episode came out. Uh, when they were still calling it D next for a while. Oh yeah. Oh, no, so my cool. wife and I actually That's did the play test of D D next. We have the special dice they give out to playtesters. Oh, that's cool. That's that's my claim to nerd fame. And I was going to Google when did 5th edition come out, but my keyboard is furiously loud, so I I won't inflict that on (laughs) on the listeners. I mean, I I was questioning your nerd credentials until until you heard about They're ugly dice, too. They're very dumb looking. So, All right. So Andrew uh, mentioned something that I think is one of the interesting parts of storytelling when it comes to tabletop rpgs and that's the dm or also sometimes called the gm is that right the yes dungeon DM is strictly a dungeons is a and dragons term. term yeah okay and and then gm would be the game master right yeah yeah so this is here i'm gonna throw the question out uh fifth edition yeah. is 2012 by the way yeah. oh 2012 what i was thinking or that was the announcement was. january 2012 yeah. official oh, release okay of the play yeah. test was 2013 2013 and so the rule books were like 2014 yeah so fourth edition dungeons and dragons was from i think either late 2008 to somewhere in mid 2009 to whenever uh fifth edition came out it's the shortest edition of D, I believe yeah not counting 3.0 all right for any listeners who are curious about this but have never actually gone and played a session of Dungeons & Dragons, would one of you be willing to explain the mechanics of DMing versus being a player in the game? Are we focusing on D&D or is this like tabletop role-playing in general? I thought that Venn diagram was closer than it appears to be. So uh... <laughs> running a game, so... I would say, is like... <laughs> pretty general is a pretty like general thing because like most of what you do when you run a game is you decide are you going to play like a pre-published adventure are you going to play uh inside of an already created game world from like the ip of the game that you're going to play um you have to kind of be the referee so a lot of times you have to uh, referee is a good term that's the term i like to use because you Mm -hmm. do have to deal with like making rules calls um and it's sometimes systems have like a lot looser rules and sometimes they're a lot tighter um or more complicated the term that the rpg uh, community uses is something is fluffy if it's rules light and crunchy if it's rules heavy oh that sounds very inviting yeah not intimidating at all (laughs) right and and like a fine snickers bar (laughs) (laughs) and 
the whatever game you're getting almost certainly will provide instructions for running the game like uh, like at least one page if not a chapter to be read by whoever's running the game whether they're called a, a, a gm or whatever and says hey like make sure everyone's having fun be a storyteller be be engaging help people play the game you know it like it it, it is an instruction manual for like keeping your friends happy there's yeah. a, a subgenre of rpgs that as far as i know just based on my experience uh, came out in the sort of kickstarter boom of rpgs we saw in the 2010s and it is GM-less RPGs. Um, yep. I have read a couple of them. I do not like them in concept. <laughs> and so I have never actually... No, that's not true. I have played uh, like one or two. Um, but if you like, if you put out uh, every RPG ever made and you hurl the dart at them on the wall, you're going to hit one where there is someone... They're going to be called the, the dungeon master, the game master, the storyteller, the director. The, the, every, especially indie RPGs, insist on having their own cute names for this role. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so this is the, the person who is setting the scene uh, and will kind of work out the results of a lot of player choices. But then the players, once they're in there, the, the players are very collaborative in terms of what what's about to happen, uh, you know, on the on this in this game. Right. That is the ideal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's um, there's I'm trying to think how to put this. If you were to compare tabletop RPGs to improv comedy, um, there's some advantages that tabletop RPGs have in that, yes, the players are the ones driving the story. Although if you read a Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder module, they're usually very hostile to that, but that's a totally different rant. Um, but yes. the, the players are sort of driving the story forward and the DM is there to say, what do you do? And then tell them the result of what they tell the DM. Um, the, the thing that separates it from improv is you've got the DM who can and often should say no. Um, and then you have the dice, which are out of the control of everyone, except arguably the GM, that there's different philosophies on that, um, that sometimes just say no to everyone at the table. And so it, it introduces, like the DM introduces a, a I don't want to say perpetuity, like a, like like a solidness, a groundedness to the setting that they can sort of anchor everyone into. And then the dice introduce a chaotic element that everyone has to respond to which are both things that, I mean, technically improv could have, but tech usually doesn't. And like to kind of, to kind of like build off that um, you're talking about, like sometimes GMs have to say no. Like I, I think the two most important phrases as like a game master are yes. And, and no, but which are both like very much like improv things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's um, a thing that I think needs to be understood when discussing RPGs and um, like in, in online discussion of them, I think this could instantly end a lot of online discussions. Uh, but I first read about this in Paranoia and then these ter- sorry, Paranoia is the name of an RPG. Um, and Where then you can sort of die in character other- creation. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's, that, I, that feels very early. So in Traveler, you famously can too. I didn't mm-hmm. realize you can mm-hmm. die in Paranoia character creation. Wait, why are the stakes so high before the game begins? Well, they're like very conspiratorial, like really. high concept settings. So like the character creation is also a part of the game rather than a pre-game thing. 
And, and par- paranoia leans into the comedy aspect of RPGs mm-hmm. quite a bit. It, I think you could run it as a horror suspense thing, but I, I've never seen anyone do that. Yeah. Um, but you, so you live in this dystopian city that's run by friend computer. And then you are, I think you're called troubleshooters because you go find trouble and shoot it. Um, <laughs> and then they, each of you have six clones because the expectation is that your character will die. Oh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're like, that's not the rules, I am one edition behind on Paranoia. So I'm sorry for whatever I'm getting wrong right now. And I haven't been <laughs> Paranoia since I think second edition. So I don't know what edition they're at now. Yeah, it's 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 a really fun like Halloween one-off game because the expectation is all the players are going to get killed six times. Um, right. And then the, the GM punishes them. It takes advantage of a lot of the meta aspects of RPGs where there's like usually an unspoken understanding that your characters know what's going on in the setting, but not in paranoia. Um, I got very distracted. Oh, wait. Okay. So um, the terms that paranoia introduced me to that I have fallen in love with since are uh, gameism, narrativism, and simulationism. Yes. Um, Very important things to talk about is what the goal of the system is. Exactly. Because there's things like um, you mentioned White Wolf earlier and the the uh, World of Darkness game. Uh, it, it actually has a, a fair amount of crunch to it, to be fair. But yeah. um, I, I would call that a fairly narrativist system. I would call, I would call yeah. it a gently narrativist system. Um, yeah. And then. So, so wait, real quick. And what are those three terms <laughs> yes, meaning? Okay. So, so, so a, a gamist game, a narrativist game and a, a simulationist game. Yeah. So a, a narrativist game means the focus is on telling a good story or having a good narrative. Gamist is having um, engaging game mechanics, being a good game and simulationism is representing reality or verisimilitude in, in a believable and consistent way. And one thing that drives me crazy is when these terms caught on, every game designer was like, oh, my game's all three. And that's wrong. (laughs) Gameism means at the expense of the other two, it favors the game. And narrativism means at the expense of the other two, it favors the story. So so Um, there's there is a a balance and a tension between them. And to increase one, there will be a sacrifice in others. My sense is like if your familiarity with D&D or or RPGs is through like actual play podcasts, they are all narrativist. (laughs) They lean towards as a general rule. Yeah, yeah, they lean into the storytelling part. They're going to lean more than yeah, the the nuts and bolts of the rules. But that's not necessarily what the the game rules themselves are kind of leading them towards. I when I read through fifth edition D&D it reads to me much more like a narrativist game than previous editions. Fourth edition yes, was agreed. very gamist. It was all about making the game feel like a game and understand making the mechanics clear and trying to balance things. Whereas 3.5 is a very simulationist game. There are rules for nearly anything. And most of them are fairly consistent as far as what the game is trying to communicate to you, whether or not they're realistic. And that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Well, and um, when we had our sort of pre-podcast chat, Norman, uh, you mentioned that you uh, played Shadowrun, and I have a love-hate relationship with Shadowrun. Me too. And until like two two days ago, that was the one I held up as a simulationist system because it, it goes out of its way to represent every little part of what's going on. And yet, um, I consider uh, just Shadowrun two third. days ago, I found Battletech, and oh, oh my oh. goodness. <laughs> Uh, anything that's like in the battle tech, uh, like mecha genre of role playing games that I've ever even approached is like some of the most. This is a 
a game built of tables and graphs more than anything else that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like it has it has very devoted and loving followers. It's like the guys who play historical war games mm-hmm. where it's like, well, we need to calculate ballistic arc. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's like that's the early progenitor of like tabletop RPGs is historical reenactments right. and war games. And then in 1974, Gary Gygax and, and Dave Arneson were just like, hey, what if we make wargaming sim- simpler, quote unquote, and and mm-hmm. sell it to people as like a fantasy game? And yeah, so, layered on Tolkien-esque high fantasy, right? Your your description of the like the battle tech, like calculating ballistic arc and everything reminds me of debates that happen in um in one of the the actual play podcasts that i listen to glass cannon podcast and they they usually throw it away pretty quick because they don't want to spend time doing the pythagorean theorem to determine whether or not somebody <laughs> yeah. has enough range yeah. when someone is flying it's pointless yes. like okay well i know what what their distance is in two-dimensional space if they're flying 30 feet that means i have to do a squared plus b squared and i'm not gonna do it so just make a call the yeah. way well and there's a fun thing in fifth edition too because diagonals became one because in third edition and pathfinder moving diagonally cost 1.5 movement to keep mm-hmm. it roughly close to the actual yeah, yeah you, you like alternate one two one two yeah yeah and um then in 5e they're like ah eh, whatever moving diagonal just costs one which then space is non-euclidean in 5e <laughs> which has some really amazing consequences if you you think which you should not i mean this is abusing the intent of the game yeah um but the, yeah. the point of the point of that were. rule adjustment yeah the, the point of that rule adjustment is to reduce the simulationism and exactly increase, i assume the the gameism right. Yeah, that that would be a gameist mechanic. Yes, right. So and that comes from Fourie that... because Fourie is like that too. It just counted all the distance and squares. Oh, that's right. That did start Fourie. That's right. There's a lot of mechanics in Five E that are just redressed for E mechanics because there was such a bad reaction to so many things in Fourie. But there's a lot yeah. of good stuff in Fourth Edition as far as how to build a coherent, balanced game. So my sense is that for some people all the rules and, and the kinds of things you're talking about is a barrier of entry to getting into RPGs. Like it just yes. feels a little intimidating because I mean, these guidebooks, how many pages is it, is the guidebook for Pathfinder is the most hilarious example at 600. But um, the Pathfinder first edition core rulebook though, is both a player's handbook and a DM guide in one book. Same, right. same for their second edition handbook. So they, right. instead of making two separate books, they do make it, like a single core rule book is just is really long, yeah. but you only have to buy, buy the one document. Yeah. So indie games are going to run usually one to 200 pages and they're going to be, oh, I forgot the name of that size, like the size of holding a paperback novel. And like a trade Dungeons and Dragons, the, the granddaddy. Yeah, 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 exactly. I have and an indie Dungeons game that I pulled off the shelf is... uh, that I kickstarted uh, during the pandemic that is... Uh, probably the heftiest indie game that i've seen in a while uh coyote and crow their core rulebook oh, is that 471 pages um and it is uh maybe the most beautiful rpg book that i've ever held i very nearly backed that one uh, i i've done a hard embargo on kickstarting anything but that one tested me I actually I had kickstarted it and then thought that I and then I I thought that I had canceled it or I I did cancel it I'm pretty sure or or I thought I did and then I, I got charged for it and it showed up and I was like oh okay 
I you forgot about beat that. the coyote and the crow. <laughs> Uh, but it, it's really, it's really beautiful. Um, and it does, uh, the system is very, um, world of darkness like in that it uses one kind oh, okay. of die. You are comparing like a number of successes on the dice to a target number. It's very much like world of darkness. Um, Kevin, mm. if you if you've played that, but it's just very simple. Yeah, it uses yes. deep belts. Um, which has to do with some of the Native American culture that inspired and like really heavily contributed to the game, I guess. All right, I'm gonna. I'm I'm realizing the answer to this is that there's a spectrum and and there's <laughs> a very large spectrum. <laughs> Grab that steering wheel, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, where where do you want to drive this conversation? So I'm gonna ask you individually your platonic ideal. How does storytelling take place in a tabletop RPG? What is actually happening oh no wants to take turns (laughs) uh yeah yeah norman why don't you you go okay so like the to me the kind of like the the ideal way that storytelling happens in and in a tabletop rpg is like the game master has an idea for the kind of game they want to run they find some like-minded people are interested in like this genre or this world um and they talk about the kinds of stories they want to specifically tell in that world And then they all kind of work towards that goal together. Um, One of the forever DMs among my play group um, was very, very good at doing this. And it's really, I think that he is partially responsible for a lot of my love of role-playing games in general, because he was very good at getting us to like understand the collaborative effort as players and getting us as players to connect to his world. Because a big rule that he had was when creating a character is, I need to know what one thing your character cares about more than anything else in the narrative that we're building together. I need to know what thing they care about above all else so that we can all work on that together to build tension across the story. That's fantastic. That's a, that's a really good idea. So and, uh, uh, I like this was very important when we being... played games where we played villains, when we played evil characters, because it made those games much more grounded and made the characters much more interesting and relatable and prevented us from like turning into Saturday morning cartoon villains. <laughs> um, I-, I like what you said about it being so collaborative, because I've heard some people complain that sometimes the relationship can almost become antagonistic between the DM and the players where it feels like the players are trying to like conquer the DM. Yeah. Uh, that, that comes it, from Gygax himself in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> when you say collaboratively work together on a goal. So the, like the, the DM has laid out a situation and the players are trying to work their way through it. How, how does that become collaborative at that point? So to me, it's like to use like a cliche like the idea is like we're gonna go to a castle to save a princess that's been kidnapped by a dragon like the thing that makes it collaborative is that all the players are on board with like that being the end goal of like what we're doing and we can decide the ways in which we're going to get there together and the ways in which like the story of like why this per- why this person was taken to this castle what relation the dragon has to the kingdom what relation the dragon has to your characters what relationship the princess has to your characters determining all that's collaborative. That's not just a one way, like feed of information from the GM to me. It's very important that we all kind of like work together on how we connect to the pieces. The GM has put on the board. Like if there's a general in the army and a player's like, Oh, I want to be like a, 
like a new recruiter or even in someone who's like just recently gained office, I want a relationship with this NPC. That's a collaborative piece of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Kevin, uh, do you have anything about your kind of yeah. ideal? So I want to plus one what Norman said. I think the mark of a good GM is definitely one who is going to uh, collaborate with the players in terms of uh, finding out what their character's like and integrating that into the story. I believe that should be universally true unless you are specifically for some reason excluding that element from your story, in which case it's kind of like you're doing an art house campaign. Um, the the other cop-out answer I'm going to give is I think there are two ideal story formats. Um, ugh, I even hate committing to two, but I'm going to get it down to two. Um, there's what I'm going to call the nature hike, uh, which is uh, we have a term in role-playing games that's used usually derogatorily railroading, which is where the DM has an idea of how the story's supposed to go, and they use some level of force to remove the player's agency over the story and force them down the storyline that they want. Um, the nature hike is where the players are allowed to go a bit off trail, but the DM does have an idea in mind, and it is going to sort of follow a story, sort of like a Final Fantasy game or, or a Mass Effect or Dragon Age, one of these games where the player does have input, but it's going to follow the same general path. I think those are perfectly valid campaigns, and they can be very good if the DM is a good storyteller, and if all the players understand that's what's happening and they are on board. Um, the other one, and my personal favorite, at the risk of being a cliche, is uh, what's called a sandbox. Uh, which is where the GM does not have a story in mind. They have a situation in mind um, and they present the situation and the players take action and the consequences of their actions happen. And then they respond to those consequences. And so in that sense, I would say that is the most collaborative type of campaign in that everyone has to have initiative and be paying attention. You can't go on autopilot and let the GM take you to the end. Um, and I have thousands of thoughts on how to tweak and make those ideal. I also think those sit on a spectrum that it's not either or. Um, yeah. But those those are the two, I'd say, platonic ideals. <laughs> so when you yeah. say sandbox, I guess my question is like, how can the DM, like, like how much of a world do they have to have prepared? Less beforehand? than you might think. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, that's that's a very depends kind of question. Um, and, so, and it depends on the system and like what kind of support yeah. you have. So Pathfinder, for example, uh, because they've been building in the same campaign world since the days of writing adventures for Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 on the world of Galarian, they have 15-ish uh, years of back catalog of adventure paths and world information and wiki pages that you can go look up and read about almost any part of the world has been detailed to death and that's there for you as a resource if you want to run in the world of galarian for pathfinder or for any game you can just kind of run any game in that world if you really want to because all the information about the relationships between these countries and npcs and stuff is just there for you but some games have a lot less and the way that a game sets up uh, a GM when there is less is either by being a fairly bare bones, like kind of mechanics first system that provides some kind of simple base that you can build a world off of or a game that pre presents There's... like a lot of good shorthand information that paints a good picture for you, which is one of the things that I think 
uh, Shadowrun and World of Darkness are particularly good at. Oh, interesting. I, uh, interesting. Um, so to, yeah, to build off what Norman's saying there, I, this is not the topic of the podcast. I would actually argue Shadowrun and World of Darkness both have pretty well established settings. But, yeah, but I mean, like in the books yeah. themselves, and then like how easily accessible that stuff was at the time that I was playing. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, and I love how uh, in World of Darkness, if you get like mage, you get to learn about that part of the setting. If you get yeah. werewolf, you learn about that part. Um, I like I how did compartmentalized mage, think... World of Darkness is. Yeah. Also, mage is terrible. Don't play that, it. That really I love mage. We're fighting too. now. That, that part of. Ah, <laughs> oh, darn it. All right. That's fine. <laughs> uh, uh, but there's another thing that, that Norman kind of touched on that I think is an interesting. So, okay. First of all, what he said is absolutely true. And uh, how little you need to have prepared is there's a couple reasons for that. One is you can use prefab settings. If you do that, do Eberron. I command you. It's a magic punk setting. It's wonderful. It was made for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but I also, Galarian's also, I have great. a hot I mean, take, but I'm not a big fan of Eberron either, which is unpopular. Oh, among no. the TV <laughs> Pistols this... at dawn, Norman. Yeah, this <laughs> conversation was going so well. It was. It was going great. Um, but then uh, the other reason is uh, if you... Okay, so one thing that I think uh, DMs undervalue is because D&D has, uh, yeah, well, D&D and therefore TTRPGs have so much of their heritage in Lord of the Rings, there's a strong drive to do epic journeys across the world as your story. And those Mm -hmm. are great, and everyone likes them and understands them, but you don't have to do that. There's no No. reason you couldn't do an extended campaign in a single city. Like, oh, I'm going to say it wrong. Ptolus? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble with a listener for this one. Um. Yeah, I, mean, I, I ran just, a I ran a year and a half long campaign with two players almost entirely inside one city. So I've yeah, been there. And, and like theoretically, and this is getting more on the high art side, but you could do it inside a single house, you know, like, oh, yeah. uh, like there's you, a, a, you, a you black can, box game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're in this blank space and filling it's, it in. I mean, we're starting well, to sound like an escape room. In some okay. Ways but, but unironically, <laughs> that's the other thing I was going to say is if you're starting a sandbox campaign um, and this advice comes from one of the DMGs, I've read far too many at this point to remember which one, but uh, they say like, okay, if you want to do an adventure about raiding a goblin encampment, do that, build the city, build the goblin encampment. And then just make stuff up. Oh, I think it was Mike Shea, Sly Flourish, who talked about this. And then just build the campaign out as you go. It's like, okay, they did that. What would be fun after this? Oh, there's a mine uh, full of sapphires and ghosts. And just go from there. You don't need the entire planet. You need whatever the players are interacting with. Yeah. And so there are several reasons why you do not need to do that much prep to run a sandbox campaign. Yeah. You, you only need to do what seems immediately available. And if your players kind of throw you a curveball, come up with something and take a note. Yeah. And, and you are running that risk, of course. But if you're GMing, you're going to become comfortable with improv one way or another. So it is inevitable. Andrew, Andrew, do you have a preferred ideal? Um, so I, I want to say like two things. My first thing is, um, like a more generous version of it. And then my second thing is like what I actually want. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my first thing is uh, I think the platonic ideal in, in terms of what Kevin said, where there's, you know, there's kind of a, a, a nature walk and a sandbox. And uh, in, in my platonic ideal, 
the GM and all of the players would be on the same page about what kind of game they're playing. Yes. Which is not always the case. No. <laughs> and it's super frustrating <laughs> when, when there's disagreement on, 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 in, in, in any particular way. Cause you might have players who want a nature hike and players who want a sandbox and, and that's not the, very compatible at the same time right now. And, and that's not super compatible. That. You can, you can like, do things to kind of balance them a little bit. Like you can, sometimes the person that likes the nature walk, they're just the person that's really in to the minutia of the rules and you can give them things to keep them busy and to keep them engaged, mm-hmm. but you just can't do it all the time. Or the, the sandbox people sometimes just kind of disengage. Yeah. Because they want to be chaotic. And I'm not a fan of chaotic players. I so so what like my reality is I want I I want to use a pre-written adventure path rather than a homebrew or or like a make it up as you go kind of thing. I want to use the things that have been written and prepared by professionals for the benefit of everyone to to play together. <laughs> And I want to be playing with a bunch of people who are interested in getting to the end of that adventure path. It doesn't have to be a, like a straight shot. It's not a yeah. speed run. But I would I would want everyone to be like, let's figure out what the end of this story is and let's work together towards it and try to try to color within the lines, so to speak. And there's opportunities for random stuff, right? I think... Uh, I mean, now I'm trying to think like there's differences of how I want that to go as a GM and as a player to some extent, but I think those are compatible where it's like, okay, it's a GM's responsibility within, within that. I think that's more nature walkie and maybe a little stricter than nature walk within that. The GM should periodically create opportunities and be like, okay, it is, it is a day where you guys get to say what you want. If you want to find a, a, a place to drink, Tell me that you want to find a place to drink and I will help make that happen. If you want to go shopping, tell me that you want to go shopping and I will make that happen. If you want to interact with, you know, some underworld element of this city, tell me that that's what you want to do. But you have to tell me that's what you want to do. And then you have to stick with that. Because sometimes players tell you something and they don't stick with it. They get bored with their own idea, which is (laughs) which is a frustrating improv position as a GM. That's a different thing, though, right? Like. That's a different thing, though, right? Because sometimes someone like asks for something, but then the nature of like the mechanics of the game or something about the way the idea was executed, like causes them to disconnect with something they thought they were going to enjoy. And that that's like a Mm -hmm. different conversation to have, like outside the game about like, well, what is it you actually wanted out of this? Like, what's not working for you? Let me let me admit to you real quick. Can I just say that's a hard conversation to have with an 11 year old? Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure. <laughs> no, no offense, Joe. No, I, I, I had to help guide Kit on some of his choices. Yeah, um, like, I'm, I'm but sure it's a tough true. conversation to have with with the 11 year old when it's like this is the boss battle. Okay, you said you want to run away. You're going to run away. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's going to leave everyone in the lurch. But Whatever okay, you you're doing. Wait, did we have bad. this whole podcast episode so you guys could hash out your table talk? <laughs> no, we hash. We had to hash that out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We had to hash that one out. Yeah. Yeah. But like, Kit, if that's what you want to do, he's going to let you do it. Like, but... like I had to set up a rule. I was like, okay, so here, here's a couple of rules. One, don't ask questions till I'm done talking. <laughs> as, as a GM, wait on the questions. Two, whatever you say you're going to do, the first thing you say that you're going to do is what you're going to do. And, uh, and so we had to, you know, like go with that to just keep it moving along because he would say 
three or four absurd things. Right. <laughs> like, I want to throw my sword. Okay, you said it. You're throwing your sword. You don't have a sword anymore. Okay, it's it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes um, the most dangerous but, words you can hear a GM say are, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> That's like a, a, a warning. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and so, like, from from the GM perspective, like I want to be I want to be using the adventure path. I don't want to be making it up because I don't trust myself that much for it. And it's really hard. And it's and like it is vulnerable and like it's it's very nervous and it's easy to not be confident in it because it's like, OK, I made up a story. I hope they like it. And so it's like it's, it feels very vulnerable to me. So it's like if I can lean on an adventure path, I want that. But I also want the players in good faith to be trying to complete the adventure path. And so when yeah. I indicate things or I like say it's like, no, that door's closed. I want them to take the hint and be like, oh, OK, the adventure is not behind that door. It is in the direction that I'm being pointed towards. There's a and sometimes they, oh, they so follow sorry. the pointing and sometimes they don't follow the pointing. And so I'd like them to, you know, you know, I think there's a, an element of the collaboration that is cooperative mm-hmm. and yeah. that can be a, a tricky needle to thread in some cases. And, and as a player, I want to be playing with people who have a similar agenda and, and I find chaotic players to not be fun for that because they're not trying to get right. reach objectives. I mean, I like to cause problems on purpose, but in a way that causes the story to move forward. So like, mm-hmm. I like when some, when a GM generally presents something to me, that's like, this is potentially dangerous. If it's handled wrong, I'm always wondering to myself, well, what is the way to like cause this, like to be a little more dramatic without like totally derailing the campaign. And I've like gone <laughs> out of game and be like, Hey, do you want me to make this like a little harder on us? <laughs> like outside of the table? Be like, <laughs> I've been thinking about this thing in the background for a while. And I'm just like, I feel like this could just be really interesting. Mm-hmm. I had um I had a conversation at the comic shop this last week um with the with the clerk and he was talking about running games and he said he talked to his players and it's like okay like do you want to be directed towards like do you want sandbox or do you want to be directed towards something and they said we want to be directed towards something so he presented a prophecy they ignored it and after three months of gameplay he said okay the world ended well, like you ignored thing. the prophecy you asked me to give you. There's a, a thing in the That's community incredible. called uh, Session Zero, yeah. which is where you get together before the campaign mm-hmm. and you set your expectations and make sure everyone's sort of on the same page. And that's where you like talk about genre and, you know, silly, goofy. And we should talk about genre because that's related to storytelling. But also, um, the other thing that I think uh, a skill every GM needs to master is talking to your players in the middle of the campaign, like having session 0.1, where it's like, hey, uh, you told me you wanted direction. I gave you a prophecy. You didn't follow it. That puts you in danger. Is this what you're intending the campaign to do? Are we still going? Like, you know, it's the whole point of D&D is to have fun. And there are social contracts involved in that fun. But I don't know. I, I, I think people put way too high a value on like player agency when you should absolutely just talk out a game and be like, this is not the expectation I had. Can we fix it? You know, mm-hmm. have you found in your I think most of you are over a decade of playing. Uh, right, Andrew? You, you um, were at least I'm, a decade not, with, uh... I'm not quite, but okay. yeah. But Kevin and Norman, a couple decades of playing. Has your own personal philosophy evolved? 
Oh, for sure. Very much so. Um, I was very much interested at first in uh, like seeing how powerful of a character I could create in any game I was playing. And that just comes from Mm -hmm. like, uh, like an immaturity and a need to like feel like the center of attention that I to a degree grew out of. But I also, I think it also comes from uh, uh, like old, uh, like Marvel playing or, or uh card decks that on the back it would show you like the strength level on a scale of oh yeah 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 and uh <laughs> you know, like if you could just max all those out you'd be like ah oh, i'm a god <laughs> and like right and like to a degree like there is still like an aspect of like power gaming that i enjoy as a player uh because i find the building blocks part of a system to just be really interesting and i like to see what i can do and to me, part of the exercise of, exercise of sort of seeing how powerful of a character I can make now is kind of just seeing where the limits of a system are and then finding something inside those limits somewhere that I'm going to feel engaged with mechanically without like taking everything away from everybody else at the table. Because I do enjoy the mechanics of the game generally. Uh, Kevin, any ways that you know, you've noticed yeah, your own philosophy so- change? Okay, I would like to remind the dear listener that I started playing when I was 12. So, yes. Um, so I, I hope change sometime throughout the majority of your life. Yeah, and so um, the perhaps half of my tabletop RPG career was spent uh, satiating my lust for control over my friends. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, I, I was the worst kind of GM. But again, come on, guys. I was a 12. I was 12. Uh, right. And then, yeah, in high school, I, it would, became more about expressing what an edgelord I was. And so I had really hardcore characters all the time. I tried to be very gritty. Um, Is there an impulse to make, like, the darkest backstory possible for your characters? Very much well, so, especially among teenage players. But also, like... You got to have a reason that you're out here in the middle of nowhere adventuring in a lot of in a lot of like genres. Right? True. So like adventures don't come if, from happy homes. As a right. If you have a happy, well-adjusted home life, what are you doing? Why, why are you way out here doing this? <laughs> Had a good job, uh, good retirement benefits, uh, wife and kids. Nah, and uh, I wanted I to leave it all behind and hunt goblins. <laughs> why? Yeah. Um. But then as an adult, my most recent philosophy change, and I expect to keep going, is um, there is a wonderful blog I'm going to plug called The Alexandrian, written by Justin Alexander. Uh, He's been playing longer than I have, and he he thinks good thoughts. He writes good. (laughs) Um, And he convinced me that my off-the-cuff improv style uh, was worth exploring outside of that box. And so um, I, I actually did a, a short video essay on this about the difference between um, what I call it brick and Play-Doh, I think GMing. And uh, that's if the, if the thief says, I search that pile of garbage and they roll very well. And your notes do not say there's anything in that pile of garbage. Do you reward their ingenuity or the role by improving some treasure in that pile of garbage or do you say no there was no treasure in that garbage so you very effectively find nothing and if you'd asked me even five years ago i would have said no they rolled well they thought to search i'm going to give them a little piece of treasure uh i have moved into the new philosophy of no there's no treasure in that pile of garbage you are exploring a world that exists and the fact that you are searching very well does not create objects um you cannot 
be a hardliner on this. It's not possible to be a hardliner on this. Um, but I've moved much more toward being more of a brick GM where the world is what it is and I will, the players are exploring it. See, I think I've gone uh, the other way as a GM mostly where I'm like much more into trying to find small ways to reward those sorts of things more often than I would have in the past. Yeah. And as someone who practiced that for many years, it's a totally valid way to GM. I'm, uh, one's not better than the other, although I oh, think no, anyone who not. marries one should try the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, cheat on your marriage a little bit in terms of GM <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> Make sure you it down it's quickly. You don't, you don't leave that hanging. Uh, let me just clip that. <laughs> um. Hi, hi Rods. <laughs> I'm glad your whole family sent you this podcast. <laughs> um, Andrew, has your philosophy changed at all? Um, there's elements that have that have changed some, but I think it's more like my understanding of of like, oh, this is how gameplay works has evolved more than my philosophy because I think early on I expected a lot less constraint, and and I think I had a, a good GM who's like there's a degree to which you can do this and a degree to which you can't do this. And I'm, I'm going to set some parameters. And at times that was frustrating. Like, I mean, early on, even just like the basic mechanics, like it takes a move action to stand up. I'm like, what? That sucks. And <laughs> it was like, no, like that's just like, that's the world. And, and you got to deal with that sort of stuff. Um, and so now I, I definitely don't have issues with that. Um, but I think, uh, I don't know, one, one philosophy element, I don't know if this is like an evolving philosophy or just something I, I want to like bring up and, and like kind of gripe about. <laughs> um, and I, I feel bad because I feel like it's going to sound like I'm calling out our brother. Oh boy. And it's only spicy oh. the more you put on qualifiers. <laughs> going I, I thought it was going to be me for a second. But <laughs> it's, it's be like I'm calling out Joe. Like, oh, go ahead. Well, no. it's, it's, I don't, I don't think it's calling out, but it's um, like misappropriation of the rule of cool. Uh huh. That's a pet peeve of mine, too. I, yeah. So the idea of the rule of cool is like if somebody wants to like cut down a chandelier and swing on the rope to get somewhere. Like, theoretically, you should be able to say, like, okay, there, yes, there is a rope attached to a chandelier nearby. So you can take advantage of that because it's a cool thing to do. Right. Yes. But it doesn't mean that, like, I want to do this thing and it's cool. So let me do it. <laughs> right. Which, right. which I don't think our brother, I don't think our brother authentically has, has like suggested that a lot of times, mm-hmm. but sometimes he'll suggest it in jest. And I'm like, I don't have time for, like joking about rules I'm going to shoot down. <laughs> like, can we please like, you know, like, like sincerely ask the question if you, if you want to do something. And, and so that's a, that's a thing where I think initially I probably was like more on board. It's like, okay, if it's cool, like it should be possible, but more and more it's like, okay, thinking up something cool within tighter parameters is mm-hmm. a much better use. And, and even in a lot of cases, like, okay, not everywhere is going to have a chandelier. And, you know, and things that you want to do that are cool. It's like, okay, but there's actually a set of rule mechanics for this and you are nowhere near capable of doing that. For, for example, this is not something that somebody like pushed rule of cool, but Joseph, during our campaign, uh, we had a mini boss and your son wanted to use message to compel this mini boss to jump off a cliff. 
Wait. Oh, oh, my brain Message just started hurting. Is just a walkie-talkie. <laughs> yep, and, uh, and, and, I didn't and like you let him do it, it, and he, he said jump off. Like, and that's I what you wanted to know. Yeah, and it was like I felt I was like that's not very yes and. <laughs> it, it's very like no period. But also, but well, yeah, it's like there's there's spells that would ex- that would explicitly be compelling compulsion spells and you have to have like very specific ones that would allow somebody to do something to commit harm to themselves uh-huh. it's very right. high level and i was like i'm not going to dig into this during the beginner box of a, <laughs> of these level one characters yeah um and right. say it's like no your message spell can't force somebody to do something against their will <laughs> right. never mind just something about self-harming and, uh, then it didn't work and we moved on to the next person yeah right. and i was the like no but so, would be so, like does this cause a distraction in this person because it's such a ludicrous thing to hear in the middle of this encounter yeah but but also i was like it's just a free action like i can't you know like to to speak and respond i'm like i don't know if this is gonna lead anywhere i think i had a like as a player i wanted to like find that outside the box way early on but then eventually i was like i'm just gonna magic missile that's you know it's it's, it's just what's gonna get the job done right now (laughs) doing the magic missile when your player says i use message tell him jump off a cliff if you run with that right if you're like oh what a cool creative idea you have just turned message into a kill spell (laughs) and obviously they're gonna do it again yeah yeah and so yeah well and, and so like one of the one of the issues that i have at at that point is um, and, and this goes with like the wanting players and GMs to be on the same page and everything is I also want to not be. And, and this uh, this is just a challenge for, you know, playing with people who are playing for the first time. Like I'm spending like three to four hours prepping for the sessions on a regular basis mm-hmm. so that we can play for for a couple of hours. You know, there's a certain amount of preparation that I'm doing and the amount of preparation that you guys were doing was largely nothing. Like you guys were not reading <laughs> spells. You, uh, <laughs> yep. like, like You've you never had me like, like, you so, my contents so, of what was on my player so list. There's, there's no way that you would know that, yeah. oh, at 12th level, I'm going to have a spell where I can compel somebody to do whatever uh-huh. I want, including <laughs> stop breathing. You know, like you're not going to know that. And so I like, I'm trying to balance out. It's like, you don't know that this is like way beyond the power that, you know, you can even conceive them now. And there's no way you're going to know it because like you guys didn't all have a handbook. And also you're not, you know, spending two hours of prep time for every two hours of playtime, which right. there are players who do. And and like Norman and Kevin, if you guys were playing in a campaign, when you go home, you review your character sheet, you check on everything, you make sure that you, you know, spend the money for your bolts and arrows and and all that sort of stuff. There's an amount of like player investment. And that's like the other level of on the same pageness that I would mm-hmm. want in a platonic ideal is the GM and the players are putting a commensurate amount of homework time into yeah. preparing for the game. Yeah. For sure cuz like I love building characters. That's just the thing I like to do. So I get really invested in that half of the game. Like I had a, mm-hmm. I was trying to find it before we started recording today, but I don't know where I put it. I, when I, when I ran a campaign uh, that all that campaign that all took place in one city, I created something like 70 NPCs that I had full character sheets for. <laughs> and, and, and Joe hasn't really built a character yet. 
No, I've never done. I I get. I, I've played like probably less than ten hours total. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. And you've and you've done way less than ten hours of homework for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I am. Uh, I am the noob, as they say. <laughs> um, I guess the maybe this can be an opportunity to give some final thoughts on this. What do you love most about tabletop RPGs? Like, what this is something that you've invested hours upon oh, hours man. upon hours in why you know what what resonates with you so much about this okay this is super easy for me and i can i can lock this into storytelling aspects of rpgs because um yeah I, I could go on for ages about this but uh in terms of a vehicle for telling stories rpgs can do things that no other medium can and that might be a statement of the obvious but i want to be clear that rpgs can do genres that no other medium can Uh, because not only are you interacting with the players directly like a video game does but any output the players give you any input any input the players give you can result in output that uh, exists within consistency of the world and so it is somehow it's it's like you have a video game and a weird interactive theater experience mushed into one thing and it enables you to tell the kinds of stories that you can just you can only dream about uh in other media so uh, like rpgs are crazy versatile um and they they're in my opinion an evolution of improv uh into a, a higher form oh i like that <laughs> makes me want to play more uh, yeah just call yeah. me after the podcast <laughs> that's a very good way of putting that um norman to me, the thing that I love most about RPGs, uh, and it's it's related, um, and it's less about the storytelling in particular, but it is like sort of uh, tangential to it, is by being able to create very personal feeling, emotion-laden stories with your friends and peers, you build connections and memories with them that are impossible in another kind of game, in my opinion. Right, because it's, I, I mean, I, I imagine most of us have friends that in some way, part of the friendship foundation is a shared love of X, right? Of, right. Of, uh, you know, superhero yeah. comic books, of uh, you know, a TV show that you all watch together, something like that. Uh, but this is something that that shared love is actually about creating something that doesn't exist anywhere else than when you're all sitting around the table performing it together. Right. There's, it's, it's, and it's temporary. It's not it's not a permanent thing like you didn't you didn't write a book together. You didn't create like a show together or draw a comic together. But all the things that go into doing the storytelling for for things like that exist between the two, the three, the five of you for as long as like you continue to talk about and remember those games. What I'm sorry, I'm going to throw out one more question real quick. What's the ideal size of a campaign group? I have determined in my time when I've GM'd that my favorite party size is three. So you have the the GM and then a group of three that are playing. Yeah. So I'm going to say if you include the GM as a person, my ideal size is six because that um, minimizes your chance of having to cancel. Uh, because that's, someone, that's someone schedule will work out. That is a disadvantage um, but, of a smaller group. In, in a way that uh, I agree with Norman, some of the best TTRPG sessions I've had have had two players in them or three players in them because everyone gets a lot of, if you will, camera time 
Um, and the game tends to move quickly and it tends to be more exciting and well-paced and nobody has downtime, so nobody's getting on their phones. Um, (laughs) but yeah, six helps you hedge against, um, you know, real life. Because, uh, you're just saying you can flex one person out and say, okay, you know, they're, they're on a walk. This, we like to say they're cardboard in my play groups. They're like a cardboard (laughs) standee, just kind of chilling. (laughs) I'm very lazy. My uh, PCs who are sorry, PCs is player characters, not personal computer. Uh, PCs whose players didn't show up that week, they just disappear without explanation, and they come back equally unexplained, and <laughs> yep. we just move on. Narrative world, people blink out of existence, and yeah. everyone just knows this happens. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> exactly. I should have a. Oh, I should I have the even if you travel several miles, they'll show up with the party. <laughs> just like when that, they die, they have a twin you didn't capture know about. a villain. And he's just going to disappear because that <laughs> that can happen. In the <laughs> he's gone this week. <laughs> <laughs> they come this back. Week. It's it's the final boss. Like, no, no one's in there. The chamber is empty. <laughs> or like you think it's him, I but there's something this. wrong with his voice or his face. He's just played by a different <laughs> different guy this week. Someone's filling in for this this PC. Mm-hmm. It's like he doesn't quite know the right spells to use. <laughs> Everything's just a little <laughs> off. He levels up in the middle of a fight. Too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Andrew, uh, what do you love about tabletop RPGs? Even that, that makes you stick with it, even when you have my 11 year old son throwing out <laughs> random suggestions. <laughs> uh, well, let me answer the ideal group size first, because that's a like a more concrete answer. I think it's a, a GM plus three to five. Mm-hmm. Which is basically you know, <laughs> yes. the combination of what so what they say all agree the at this point. <laughs> yeah, like, but I I think the I think they're right. You know, when they're writing the book, they're like, yeah, this works pretty well with about this many characters, and I think it is it does get hard and unwieldy, um, and and also because I like the um, the adventure paths, the pre written stuff. It's written for a certain size. It's written That's for a, a certain point. you know combination of yeah. players, and so I have to do less adaptation. It's like I don't have to add somebody here or beef somebody up. Also, you guys keep counting hit points, and it's really annoying because I want to not have to like <laughs> like I need to be able to fudge something sometimes if things are too easy. Oh yeah, we would like when we were facing a group of kobolds or whatever. We track how many times before they died, and then he's like, "Stop doing that." <laughs> sometimes i need someone to get beefed up because you went too fast um but the the stuff that i stick with it for um i think there's there's two things i think there's like creatively like creatively problem solving or creatively you know finding a way to apply the rules that's not immediately intuitive um, I think that's really fun where where different players are contributing an idea to like, OK, well, if you do this, you know, we can do this together, which is a little bit metagamey in some cases. That means, you know, talking outside the game to find a solution inside the game. Um, but I enjoy some of those conversations where it's like, OK, well, you have to walk over here or, you know, giving giving the players knowledge that the characters don't have. I enjoy some of those moments, even though it's not always in the spirit of the game, but I enjoyed, especially when it's like, okay, here is an interesting idea that the rules have gray area. And it's like working out what everyone can agree to on that. You know, the, the, the compromise on that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. I actually really enjoy that. And then the moments where, and this is, this is 
still with like that, that collaboration where people say something and it becomes the canon of the story, even though it wasn't, you know, an absolute intent. Uh-huh. It's just, this is what we said. And, and it's like, okay, now that's what we're going with. For example, Joseph, <laughs> all right, do you know what I'm going to talk about? Is it dragon burgers? <laughs> no, it's not dragon burgers. <laughs> Um, I would like to know more about dragon burgers. We'll circle back to that. That'll be in my final thought. <laughs> um, it, it was, um, I was having like a dramatic scene with, with our other brother who was in like the first ones and, and someone was talking to him and was like, and, and yeah. And, and maybe later you can go say hi to your parents at the graveyard. And he just looked at everyone at the table. They work there. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so then the immediate canon was like yes his parents are alive and they work at the cemetery and he will go visit them later. that's incredible wow <laughs> which is that's... like clearly not what it was intended what? by the dramatic scene but like what but, a joke too right like i imagine there must have there was a beat like <laughs> yes yeah, absolutely solid, yeah. and um and it's like that's a great moment where everyone's like, okay, that's like, we're all in agreement. That's way better than his visiting graves or, yeah. or anything. Um, and like those kinds of moments are a combination of like inside storytelling and outside storytelling, because saying they work there was our brother saying that as an aside to the table, it was right. not, you know, in, in the scene, <laughs> but it fills out the space and it, and it like, it's, it's that, balance where like you can't write that into something right in the same way that's a and, piece it's of collaborative world building yeah it's yeah. storytelling and collaborative world building from a combination of like in 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 game you know on, on script so to speak and out of game you know meta meta textual content and like that's a really great moment and it's like okay that it, like it's worth playing the game for those kinds of things where something is happening both above the table and on the table. Mm-hmm. The Dragon Burgers is that um, we wanted my son to make up, a, uh, like think about what his motivation was for his character. And <laughs> he said, and, like, not this, quite it, what I was looking for, it, but in the world story, like I was a single dad. He was my son. And he's like, well, I want us to get more money. So I can eat Dragon Burgers. That's it. That's all he wanted. <laughs> I was like, we want to go on the campaign. <laughs> so we get paid more money so that he can go eat Dragon Burgers. So after the first, uh, we finished like the first stage or whatever. I don't know. Right like term. the first half. The, yeah. I was about to flip the map over. Yeah. Uh, Andrews gave us a side quest where we got to go to a restaurant and there was a Dragon Burger eating contest. <laughs> and he got to roll. My son got to roll for like how many he could put away. Like, could he actually accomplish the feat of, you know, it, we had to like pay an entry fee. But if he ate enough we got that money back and he was so excited to do this role (laughs) i gave him him like three constitution checks i printed out a restaurant menu on oh it was a great menu uh, like faux parchment paper and And i had no idea this was coming that day like we just come i think we're about to go do the second half of this dungeon crawl and then he's like we're stopping at the pub for dragon burgers i'm like wait what (laughs) and joseph failed and his son succeeded (laughs) Yeah, on the on the constitutional rules because I went into the contest too, and and so then I, I I had to have a tummy ache the rest of the session. Well, you know, wizards are not famously known for their ability to win an eating contest. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh that kind of fun of like just like Andrew was saying, like an unexpected aside that becomes part of the story. Uh, like I had no idea what my son was going to say his great motivation was to go buy dragon burgers. <laughs> um, and yet it became something that when I told it to andrew uh he incorporated it into 
into the game itself. And that it's just something that's like the, the amount of creativity that is able to be explored together when the energy is right, I think is unlike what you're going to find in any other kind of storytelling medium. And, you know, every medium has a great strength to it. That's why they exist, right? You know, that's why right. the, the, a medium that's going to endure is going to have something that's working about it. And uh, at this point, tabletop RPGs is an enduring medium of creativity. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, next year is Dungeons All right. and Dragons 50th anniversary, 2024. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say that, then it's like, does that? That's first. That's like OD and D, yeah. Like, yeah, that's like the old school, um, like know, the, just the the yeah. plain paper like booklet with the little red knight on the front. Yeah, and the Romans had a D twenty, so yeah. <laughs> so that's a thing. <laughs> uh, Norman, is there anything you would like to plug? Um, sure. I, I mean, I mentioned it a little earlier on that I, uh, I guess oh, an hour ago, roughly now, that uh, I, I produced some third-party Pathfinder first edition content. In the wake of the controversy with the with the OGL, uh, I would appreciate it if you were to, to seek some of that out. I did some work with Legendary Games, uh, and you can find the books that I had worked on with them on drivethroughrpg.com. If you just search uh, my name, Norman Mitchell, on drivethroughrpg, you'll actually see the books I worked on with with legendary games as well as some books I've published on my own uh, with a partner I met just through joining a discord server about uh, RPGs. Uh, we published some stuff and you, you can find it on drive through RPG as well. Kevin, is there anything you would like to plug? Yeah. Yes, there is. I made a YouTube channel. I recorded two videos to it and then abandoned it. <laughs> And then I was going to make more videos for it. But then, as Norman already alluded to, the OGL madness made me go, I don't know if I want to make peripheral content for D&D. But at the time we're recording this, they have amended their evil ways. <laughs> so is, is there like a one minute uh, s- oh. summary of the controversy that's being referenced here? So, OK, uh, yes. Here's your one minute summary. And uh, this is the part people are going to murder me for uh, before. Uh, since third edition, Wizards of the Coast, the owners of Dungeons and Dragons since third edition, uh, said uh, they made a license that said, basically, we want third parties to make content to support our games. So new ideas for classes or adventures or whatever, bring it on, make them, and we will not sue you. Uh, and then in fourth edition, they're like, what if we didn't do that? And everyone went, rawr. And they're like, okay, sorry. And then at the end of fifth edition, when they were king of the hill, they said, what if we didn't do that anymore? And everyone went rawr. And so as of a week and a half ago, uh, they actually made the D&D uh, SRD, darn it, the D&D core rules, let's call it, um, uh, Creative Commons, yep. which was actually 5.1. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is pretty cool. It includes a lot of stuff, a lot of names that they previously had protected as IP are now names that are usable, but the mechanics still aren't in the SRD for some of them, which is like one of the more interesting yeah, which, bits of that to me. Yeah, no, I'm certain that was like a copy paste error. Like I, oh, I yeah. know someone at Wizards is picking themselves. Anyway, right. the no, name of my YouTube taxis. channel is Wrathful Strudel. So it's Wrathful, like the word of someone who's angry, and then Strudel, S-T-R-U-D-E-L, which is one of the accepted spellings of Strudel. Uh, if you type that directly into YouTube, you probably won't find my channel because I made two videos on it like a year ago. 
But by the time this goes live, maybe there'll be a third, perhaps fourth video because I'm coming back, baby. (laughs) Or go watch my two videos. They're great. (laughs) That is the greatest plug we've ever had on the show. You're welcome. (laughs) Wrathful Strudel on YouTube. Well, Norman, thank you so much for coming on and bringing your expertise. Kevin, you as well. Uh, I I feel like I've learned a lot, but in many ways I've also just learned how much I still don't know. Yeah. Uh, through, the, through this conversation, my eyes have been opened <laughs> to my ignorance. You have just Protagonist entered podcast the shallow end play of the episode. <laughs> Uh, we have thrown around the idea of doing some sort of Christmas adventure real play episode of the protagonist podcast at some point. <laughs> well, you have my phone number, so. <laughs> which is eight Oh one. But uh, maybe, I mean, this thing is, there's so much depth to this. Uh, some, maybe sometime in the future, we'll, we'll tackle another uh, RPG discussion. We'll talk just about character creation. <laughs> oh, Yeah, I don't know anything about that. So (laughs) maybe maybe? I don't know. I I actually don't know if there's enough depth to that to uh, to do that. But it sounds like probably. Yeah, I would I would say so. Uh, But for now, there's much to be said on that topic. Yeah. For now, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. away by the facebook messenger thread (laughs) where i realized it was like one of those moments of revelation where it's like i knew so little i did not know how much i don't know (laughs) like i knew i knew i was a novice but i didn't know how much i didn't know i think the feeling of the sublime to a certain degree (laughs) yes stepping in in the simultaneous awe and terror of how much information is out there i stared into the void and the void was rpg literally uh like two two hours ago i was finishing a lecture about the sublime so that was a remarkable reference there norman thank you you're welcome i watched a youtube video on the sublime but i don't know how her microphone was positioned so i don't i don't know how seriously to have taken it (laughs) 